ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Peter Dutton is asking Anthony Albanese to commit to something that Peter Dutton doesn't want. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there, welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And soon we're going to be joined by David Crow, the Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. But first, PK Parliament is back sitting this week. The government's already facing a number of key challenges, two big issues for the Albanese government front and centre. Obviously, the failure of the Yes campaign in the Voice to Parliament referendum, and we did a special ep with Dana Morse on the uh, referendum defeat on Monday. So check your feeds and have a listen if you haven't already. The government's under a fair bit of pressure over the failure of the referendum. Question time has not moved on from it yet really, in in various forms. At the same time, of course, the crisis in the Middle East escalates. Our government's been working to evacuate Australians from Israel and is struggling to do the same with Palestinians trapped in Gaza, an absolutely perilous situation and an unfolding humanitarian crisis there. There are 45 Australians trapped there. There is no way out of the tiny territory currently. So the government's having to deal with a very Australian dimension of the Israel-Gaza war here at home. Um, and that has spilled out into the parliament this week too. It sure has, in a pretty big way, actually. So in the parliament, uh, the Greens and a couple of the Teal independents, certainly not all of them, just a couple, tried to amend uh, the government's uh, motion that was supported with the opposition for, you know, a denouncement of Hamas and uh, standing with Israel and, and you know, one of those statements. And, and that really showed uh, a, the different position being taken by them, particularly the Greens who have been even more hardline, I think it's fair to say, sort of saying that, you know, Israel should be held to account for war crimes and that sort of language. Ultimately, you know, they, that didn't get up. And of course, the the motion supported with the opposition did. And then um, a, a quite a significant, in my view, moment when on Thursday morning where we're recording, uh, I spoke on Thursday morning with the Industry and Science Minister, Ed Husick, who joined um, the program to raise what he said was concerns around the loss of Palestinian lives and a failure to really think about those lives. Now, he was pretty clear in his denouncement of Hamas as the the perpetrators of the original evil in the last couple of weeks, but said that collective punishment must be something that we must be very careful about as an international community in terms of uh, some scrutiny on Israel. The number of Palestinians that have been killed so far equates to the number of people who lost their lives, 9-11. We don't see any public landmarks in Australia that are being lit up in red, black, white and green. Now, there'll be people that are very uncomfortable with me making that remark, but it goes to the heart of what Palestinians and those who care for them in Australia 
you know, that this goes to the heart of what they think, which is that Palestinian lives are considered lesser than. It was a very forceful and determined interview, I think, that Ed Husick gave you, PK, and that was such a, a, a strong statement to hear from a cabinet minister that Palestinians feel that Palestinian lives are considered lesser than here in Australia. It's the strongest statement we've heard from a Labor MP in support of the Palestinians. Historically, we know, and we, we've spoken about this before, there are splits in Labor on the issue of Israel and Palestine. Is this a, a breach within the government? Look, I think it's a bit more nuanced, yeah. but certainly it is significant. And certainly in my view, and I haven't independently verified this, I don't think that the Prime Minister's office would be in, in sort of having, being overwhelmingly happy that it's been said, because if you look at previous comments, for instance, from Peter Dutton, you know, you would assume that it might be weaponised against Labor, and I think that would be a sensitivity for the government. Now, if you listen to the whole interview, to be fair to Ed Husick, um, you know, he, he was very much denounced Hamas, said that um, Israel has a right to defend itself, you know, stuck to those key messages. But by talking about Palestinian lives being seen as uh, as lesser, um, even talking, I was surprised that he went to the the lighting up in the colours of the Israeli flag of the um, of the Opera House and not the Palestinian colours. Those things would be considered pretty provocative, I think, for some, given there is right now, this is raw, you know, for the Jewish community. Now, what he's hoping to do is talk about the humanity of both sides and the importance of a two-state solution, those things that we do support and a very much government policy. He was bolstered, though, by Anne Ali, who is also a minister, not a senior. She's an assistant. She's a minister outside of the cabinet, but she's a minister. And she also backed in the spirit of what he was saying, talking about the concerns from people who are Palestinian and their supporters around this. So they are significant contributions, Fran. Um, how do you view it? Do you think it would be seen as a crisis within the government or or it's just something difficult to manage? No, I don't think it's a crisis. I think we have two Muslim ministers within the ministry and both of them, um, Ed Husik and Anne Ali, have come out to reflect the concerns amongst the, you know, the people of, of Muslim faith in this country primarily who are concerned and who have always felt that the, the issue of the occupied territories of Gaza and the West Bank um, have, have not been given the attention and the compassion and the global support that's required here, um, you know, in the imbalance that goes on. Ed Husick, I thought listening to him, I say that was a very determined statement he made, but he also determinedly uh, supported Israel's right to defend itself against the brutality um, on the barbarism, I think he said, of Hamas. So I don't think he was out of line with the government here. It was just, um, I think, as I say, a determined statement from him. I think the government can handle can handle this. Um, PK, meanwhile, on The Voice, we're going to talk more about this with David in a moment, but the opposition is keen to milk this defeat politically. It's tried to wedge the government on treaty and truth-telling. As we go to air this morning, it's also the Peter Dutton has moved to try and suspend standing orders to introduce a bill calling for the audit of Indigenous spending and a royal commission into child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities. So they're losing no time in trying to keep the pressure up here on the government. Um, we'll come back to that audit motion with David, but the government's deflected a lot of questions behind the fact that Indigenous leaders have gone silent for a week after the loss to grieve and to consider its significance. This week of silence has probably been helpful to the government, do you think? It's allowed things to cool down? Yeah, I do, actually. I think... 
instead of the recriminations which you might see spill after any defeat, whether it's a referendum or a general election or whatever it might be, you haven't heard them in that kind of, you know, same way you would. And that's probably been to the government's benefit. Uh, doesn't mean they can avoid it forever. Um, and there will be questions about uh, the, the government's handling of this from um, and, and preempting, but, you know, some Indigenous campaigners, there'll be others who are concerned about why they're kind of, you know, hedging a little bit and, and waiting a little bit on truth and treaty, people who really are, are very, very big supporters of that approach. At the same time, we could talk about it more with David because I think the ramifications of this decision are huge. We're seeing, for instance, the LNP in Queensland uh, backflip on its previous support for a treaty process. Um, so no is being read in all sorts of curious ways when it was a referendum on one proposition. But, of course, that's not how things work. Um, there have been interpretations on what the no means. And you're seeing that spill over into state parliaments and the federal parliament. And it is tricky for the Prime Minister to, to walk this line because that defeat was big. It was not close. Mm. And so he has to manage the the sensitivities around this and the concerns from Indigenous Australians that he do something real and substantive, but equally uh, look like he's not disrespecting or not being you know allowed for this to be weaponised against him. Like, it's not an easy position to be in. And that's why the opposition wants to keep the heat on it. They know that, right? But, uh, you know, they have to be also careful, in my view, Fran, not to be too gratuitous about this. Um, and, uh, you know, one victory does not make uh, the next election one for them. Um, they say cost of living issues are huge for Australians. If they look like they're obsessed with this too much, it could also hurt them. Yes, but I think they've decided that this week is the week to try and score some points. And as I say, this motion that we're going to talk about is another um, moment in that, I think, in that effort. Um, but there was also there's also difference of views within the government about the approach the voice to, you know, the Prime Minister not wanting to talk about it too much yet, saying they're going to be listening to Indigenous Australians. You spoke with a number, a couple of Indigenous politicians, Senator Labor Senator Malandira McCarthy. She's the Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians. I noticed, PK, that when she spoke to you, she didn't rush to back the Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles when he gave the tried and true answer to the question of, you know, did the Australian people get it wrong? He said, and I quote, the Australian people always get it right. That's, as I say, a pretty tried and true true response from Australian politicians, but Senator McCarthy was not that impressed with it. If the outcome says that uh, they don't want to see First Nations people recognised and they don't want to have a voice to the parliament, I find that deeply disappointing. It's not right as a First Nations person to have to keep explaining why your history is important in this country and why we've been here for over 65,000 years. Uh, that's not right to have to keep doing that. But we have to obviously keep doing that now because Australians voted no. Malandiri McCarthy representing the NT for the Labor Party. Wow. She said it very, very calmly, um, mm. but there was a lot of emotion in her voice, I thought, and you could feel her pain. Um, and it's not right. Was it the right thing? Mm. It's not right. I mean, you know, doesn't she's saying it wasn't right for Aboriginal people? Just look at the numbers. It's the elephant and the mouse. Um, the mouse wanted a voice. We know that from the results, but they are the mouse. That's not how democracy works. The elephant said no. And this is ultimately 
the issue for the government. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. David Crowe is the Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and joins us again in the party room. We love having you here. David, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you both. You're a great friend of the party room, David, and we appreciate it. David, on the first sitting day after the referendum defeat, the opposition didn't rest on its laurels. It moved straight into trying to wedge the government over its support for the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. In other words, voice, treaty and truth. It sounded like this. The Prime Minister promised on 34 occasions that he committed fully to uh, the statement uh, from Uluru in full. That means not just uh, a voice, it means treaty, it means truth-telling, it means Makarata. Uh, and the Prime Minister now says uh, he doesn't know whether he's committed to that process or not. I think there'll be a lot of Indigenous leaders pretty unhappy with the Prime Minister who says one thing in one room and then walks into the next room and says completely the opposite. Talk about saying one thing and then the opposite, David. On the one hand, Peter Dutton wants Anthony Albanese to honour his pledge to treaty and truth. That's what that sounds like there. But on the other hand, the opposition is opposed to treaty and truth. So what's at play here? Yes, it, it was a jarring argument. And that included getting responses from journalists saying exactly what's going on here. <laughs> uh, because, of course, Peter Dutton is asking Anthony Albanese to commit to something that Peter Dutton doesn't want. And that's purely for political purposes because... The entire thrust of the coalition argument here is that Anthony Albanese has to show conviction and keep standing up for the things that he said in the past. And I think the reality is that we're at a moment of shifting politics, basically, in the light of the verdict from the Australian people. Nobody can really look back on the referendum and ignore what that referendum has said. So therefore, the government is going to have to think through where it takes Indigenous policy and we're seeing at the moment Peter Dutton shifting his own position because he said in the past he wants a, a second referendum on Indigenous recognition. Then he walked that back. Then he seemed to open the way for it again. Then he walked it back again. I mean, the reality is that his position has been shifting as well. Mm. And I actually, I'm not pointing this out because I think that politicians are obliged to pick and stick on a policy forever. When you've got the vote of 16, 17 million people, you have to take that on board. That's what Anthony Albanese is doing while he waits for Indigenous leaders to have the week of silence to consider what's just happened. And that's what I think the coalition will need to do as well. Mm. That's that's very interesting analysis. What's the government has always been pointing out too, though, David, is that in Indigenous remote communities, there was a resounding yes. Now, they are tiny um, in population compared to the rest of Australia. How much will that guide the government's thinking? I think it's a really key fact. And I think everybody should remember when looking back at this referendum that this was one of the clear signals from Indigenous people in remote areas. How you break that down to Indigenous people across the country is incredibly difficult because, let's face it, Indigenous people live in you know, communities alongside non-Indigenous people and you can't, you know, go through all the ballots from each booth and, and, and pick it apart. So I think there is an element for the government where they have to stay true to their pledges to the Indigenous people in the past and their Australian people in the past. I think the awkward reality for the government is, or well, clear reality is, they can't point to this referendum result and say there's vindication, therefore the Uluru Statement from the Heart. They can't see any endorsement here for truth and treaty, even though that's what they've committed to in the past. 
And the reality is that everybody has to now consider a different path forward in the wake of the result. And we're seeing that across the board now. We're seeing in Queensland that the LNP opposition is walking back from treaty in the light of this federal result. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely clear that the opposition is trying to wedge Anthony Albanese on here to recommit to treaty and truth, knowing that in the wake of this referendum result, it's unlikely most of the population would support it. Um, but Peter Dutton is moving very quickly in the parliament this week, very swiftly. We're recording this on Thursday morning. It's the final sitting day of the week. And the opposition leader came in and moved to suspend standing orders to introduce a motion that calls for a royal commission into child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities, calls for audit spending on Indigenous programs and support practical policy ideas to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians to help close the gap. So, you know, they're trying to keep the pressure to take this up to the government, aren't they, and goad the government, basically, to say no to things that on the face of it, to a lot of Australians, I think a lot of those people who voted no on Saturday night would think these are, you know, not unreasonable things, perhaps a good way to go. And also there's this element of the coalition pretending that it's got absolute clarity about what it wants to do in contrast to the position from Anthony Albanese, which is that he's going to wait a bit longer to figure out what the view is from Indigenous leaders and then take that on board. And I think that's a false contrast because the reality for the coalition is that its policies on Indigenous Australia are to review the problem, have a royal commission, have an audit. And Peter Dutton's stated position is that he's going to wait for Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price and Karen Liddell, who are going to advise him on future policy. So they've said no to The Voice without setting out any clear path on what they want to do instead, except to review things. I think that the argument for an audit is very interesting, and it's, it's more complicated than the usual, the usual dynamic. I think it's easy to dismiss it easy for the government to say, oh, that's a, that's a rubbish policy. And I know oh, that... Oh, it's a dog whistle. It's a dog I, whistle that Aboriginal yeah. Australians are getting all this money. I mean, is that part of what's going on here, surely? It was a clear dynamic during the referendum. When I wrote about the money being spent on Indigenous policies, I mean, I did what I could to correct the, you know, the claims about waste, to point to the reality of the spending, to make the point that a lot of this spending simply went to Indigenous Australians because they're a share of the population. They get their share of spending on health, hospitals, schools, roads. That's what the money count mm. uh, includes. And I always thought that that was such a frustrating part of the voice debate. Yeah. And yet I'd also think that for the No campaign, it resonated. And that's why I think it's more complicated than just sort of dismissing the idea of an audit. If there is an audit, it would have to look at 10 years of coalition policy it would have to examine whether the coalition, in all the time it was in power, including the time that Peter Dutton was a cabinet minister, actually got results. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad idea. Mm. There's so many policies, though, beyond Indigenous affairs where results are not delivered. And I can understand why the Aboriginal community feels singled out at a time where they're most vulnerable. But we'll just leave that there. I want to ask another question about something more broad. This win was big. Advance Australia, that organised a lot of it, has had a, a significant success. 
how much will this be the template for the next election, um, given the, you know, we used that quote at the start of this podcast, you know, the forgotten people in the suburbs. That's who he wants to pick up, this being Peter Dutton. And Nikki Saver has written a really interesting piece in your papers about immigration perhaps being the next touch point for the coalition. How much is this a template in your view, David, for things to come? I think it's absolutely a danger sign about the way Australian politics is going because we are going to see more negativity because we have just seen the sheer power of a negative campaign that offered no alternative and simply fuelled fear, doubt, uncertainty based on campaign tactics that spread lies and also spread misinformation, outrageous claims. That clearly worked for the no side, but I don't think that that's the totality of what happened here because I don't think that the answer here is to look back on the campaign and blame it all on lies, blame it all on misinformation, blame it all on voters who didn't understand. I think that that's a quite an arrogant response to the entirety of this because I think many voters simply didn't like the model here. But to your point about what that says about political tactics, we are going to see more of that. I think we will see a big debate about whether we need truth in advertising laws. It frustrates me that we just got through an entire campaign on a referendum and we don't know who donated to the No campaign or to the Yes campaign. We found out about Clive Palmer's political advertising at the end of that campaign, but when I went to Clive Palmer's people during the campaign, he denied that he would help the No side. What is what is the government likely to do? Because in the past, both major parties have been a bit, bit wary about truth in advertising laws. Yeah, they? I think the government is likely to look at it without having a clear idea about what to do about it because yeah. I've talked to people in the government who say, well, look, how do you define a lie in, in political advertising. So they are wrestling with those concepts. And it's easy to say we must stop lies in political advertising. But when you get to writing the law, it will be complicated. And I don't assume the government's got an answer. I think the government knows there's a problem. I want to move to a topic we already discussed a little bit with Fran at the top of the, the podcast, and that is the Israel-Gaza foreign policy sort of discussion here in Australia. And uh, I want to take you to something we've already talked about, but yet your view on Ed Husick's contribution. Now, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. I'm sure this will probably play out to some extent later on in the, the day. But what do you make of his intervention in terms of this collective punishment of Palestinians? I thought it was a really human response to a, a terrible situation. And I don't think that in saying that the people of Gaza are suffering a collective punishment, is in any way not recognising the atrocity that was committed against the people of Israel by Hamas. I think it's a human response. And uh, the government knew that Ed Husick was going to go on air. It also knew that Anne Ali, another minister, was going to speak in the media on Thursday morning. And so it's not that he's gone rogue with any message here. And also, I think it's important to note that when Anthony Albanese spoke about this in Question Time on Wednesday, he said that they should condemn the, the loss of any civilian life. But he went a little <coughs> bit further, David, than the government's previous lines quite clearly, including this line, the one that I picked up certainly, was the lighting up of the Opera House in the Israeli colours, not the Palestinian colours. Yes, that's contentious because that was a decision totally backed by Chris Minns as New South Wales Premier. It was a New South Wales decision. But again, I think that given Ed Husick's background, I think there are grounds for him to speak very humanly about mm. the plight that those people suffer in Gaza. And that is a reality. I don't think that's 
that's in any way something that anybody can deny because we can see it now. And, and it's a reality that, you know, he was, I think, talking about how Palestinians here and around the world are feeling about this and the response to this. Um, meanwhile, in the parliament here in Australia, the Greens were joined by a couple of Teals this week as they tried to amend the bipartisan motion of, of support for Israel. The, the parliament split uh, to some degree on this, the amendment anticipated future deployment of Israeli troops as, quote, a humanitarian catastrophe and announced, quote, war crimes perpetrated by the state of Israel. So it's an antagonistic move, I suppose, on the part of the Greens. A reflection, do you think, of just the different demographics of the voter base of, of the Greens and the Teals, David? Yes, it does reflect that. But I also think it reflects something broader. There was nobody on the crossbench supporting the Greens on this when they put the motion in the Senate on Wednesday. It was lost very strongly. Mm. And they couldn't get David Pocock in Canberra, for instance. And so that doesn't reflect the demographics of Canberra, whereas an inability of the Greens to get somebody like Allegra Spender, you might argue, could reflect the demographics of her seat in eastern Sydney, which has got a high Jewish population. So I don't think it's just de demographics. I think it's a view among everybody else in Parliament that this move by the Greens was unhelpful. They were quite isolated on this. And there is a strong view from crossbenchers and certainly from the major parties that the Greens should have supported a motion by the entire parliament earlier in the week that condemned the Hamas attack on Israel. Mm. So I think, I think the Greens are out on their own with, with their position here. I want to move to something different, uh, David, before we let you go. Um, in the wake of the referendum loss, the PM might be looking forward to getting out of the country. Um, he's off to Washington, D.C. next week, followed by trips to China, finally that China trip, and the Cook Islands. Are these overseas trips a relief from the PM, and what's he going to try and do on them? I think it's getting challenging for the Prime Minister because of the sheer number of trips. He's going to be, uh, you know, Pacific Islands... Beijing. There's also the APEC summit in San Francisco. There's the meeting in Washington. So there's a lot on, and I think that he could actually do without some of those trips. However, they're all necessary. Um, there's a big agenda in Washington. The PM is going to be up at Congress arguing for their support for the AUKUS deal, and the optics of that meeting are going to be really important with the state dinner in Washington with President Joe Biden weeks before Anthony Albanese goes to Beijing. We don't have a date yet for the Beijing visit. Meanwhile, he goes to the Pacific Islands Forum where climate change is bound to be an important issue. Uh, so there's a lot on. And mm. I think in the wake of the voice referendum, I think the entire government and certainly Anthony Albanese could, could do with a bit of respite to get across domestic issues, but that's simply not going to be possible over the next month or so. Yeah, I mean, as you say, those trips are all big, significant trips, aren't they? They're not things that you perhaps can sort of arbitrary in any way. But meanwhile, back of home, you know, while a PM has got a state dinner in Washington, there could very well be another rate rise here in Australia. Mm. During the referendum, the polls showed people want the government to be governing for them, to focus on the cost of living challenge for a lot of Australians. How does the PM walk that line, prove to voters that he is focused on their cost of living pressures, you know, when he is out of the country so much? How does he manage this, do you think? Incredibly difficult. And I think it comes back to getting on to those domestic issues as quickly as possible once those overseas trips are, are done. He could present the China visit as important for domestic outcomes. It's certainly well, it important for the economy. And so therefore, when you point to trade, you point to the need to 
to create jobs at home, normalising relations with China is fundamental. And so I think there is possibly some way to, to present that case. But what we've heard this week is really just the beginning of the government trying to convince Australian voters that it's getting results on the domestic side. And I don't think it's been you know, all that smooth. Let's face it, in the Monday, Tuesday after the referendum outcome, the government wanted to talk about the skills agreement mm. with the states. That is a really important agreement. A lot of money too, $12.6 yeah. billion. Dollars. Mm. And it's been underway for many, many months. And so I think people were kind of banking on that outcome. Everybody knew that they were heading towards an agreement with the states. So there was no surprise in the announcement. And it was clearly you know, the thing that they had lined up this week mm. to prove that they were focused on domestic issues in the wake of The Voice. Um, but we all know it's going to take time for them to recover from that outcome because I don't think anybody should sort of underestimate the significance of, of The Voice outcome in affecting the government's confidence, raising questions about the judgment of Anthony Albanese in prosecuting it the way he did, and, of course, those lessons about what campaigns are going to be like in the future. Mm, absolutely. David, thank you for letting us pick your brain. It's been great. Thank you both for letting me uh, rattle on. Always <laughs> good to talk to you. Thanks, David. See you See soon. See you. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time, the best question time you'll get. Joe on Bunurong Country from... Isaacs, which is actually Mark Dreyfus's seat, um, has sent in a voice question. Here it is. If Labor do get in on the next election, do you think that there's a chance in the near future for a voice plebiscite? And why don't they do referendums and plebiscites on election day to save on cost? Thanks, Joe. I don't think there's a chance there'll be a voice a plebiscite anytime soon. I think the Prime Minister would be accused of ignoring the will of the people if he's just held a referendum at quite some cost, I think more than $350 million, to then turn around and hold another process on The Voice. I think we have to accept The Voice as a proposal is gone. The Australian people, 60% to 40% have said no to that. So that notion did not get the tick from the Australian public. So I think the notion of a voice is gone. The government will now work with Indigenous Australians to work out what other kinds kind of proposal they could look at implementing as a government to try and help close the gap and, and improve the entrenched disadvantage amongst Indigenous Australians. But uh, that won't be any kind of um, constitutional recognition process or anything like that. It'll simply be government, government governing. It'll be setting up committees. It'll be working on programs. We've already seen, for instance, today on this Thursday, as we record it, the Health Minister, Mark Butler, and the uh, Indigenous Health Assistant Minister, Malandiri McCarthy, announcing a $30 million program on Indigenous health research grants. So there'll be moves like that from the government, but I'm certain we won't be seeing a voice plebiscite. What do you think, PK? Oh, no chance. <laughs> no chance uh, will you see a voice plebiscite. On the question, though, of why don't we just have referendums and plebiscites on election day to save on costs, it does sound like a neat way of doing it. Um, we do do uh, it sometimes. Yeah, we have done it in history. But the concern is always that you kind of muddy the issues. And this one's a good example. So let's pretend that we had had this one on election day. Do I need to say more? Mm. I mean, <laughs> oh. it was already so politicised, wasn't it? Yes. And the other part, do I need to say more about um, the biggest, in my view, uh, issue in this election? People talk about lots of different elements, but for me, it was apathy on this issue. And so if there's apathy um, and, you know, you're kind of having this uh, debate at the same time, a really important debate, 
at the same time as voting on generally your government, which is, you know, for things like cost of living, um, there might be some concern from voters as well and it, it might, you know, not it might skew or not, not just impact on the result where people don't have a clear head about it. So there's good reasons not to, although, yes, it is a neat kind of way of going, oh, let's just do it all. I don't know. I'd like to think that we can walk and chew gum, but I think it is sometimes harder than it looks. I think it depends on the question. I think it depends on what is the constitutional change we're talking about. If it's something sort of straight up and down about, you know, funding to states or representation, things like that. But this was such a a different kind of constitutional question that we were considering as a nation. It was a values thing to some degree. And um, I just think definitely didn't have any place on election day. Send your questions in because we do love getting them, considering them and hearing your lovely voices as well. Those voice notes, my personal favourites, the party room at abc.net.au. Yep, send them in. And remember, follow us on the ABC Listen app, the party room, so you never miss an episode. See you, Fran. See you, PK. Listener.